You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a brand new podcast presented by us, Kane and Abel, two people with the exact oh, same on. voice. Each Abel, of... wait, um, are we going to do the same introduction every week? Yes, it's kind of going to be a thing, everyone's like, oh, here's Talking Tricks starting, they're well, doing do we, that. Do we really need to record it every week? Can we not just use the one we used last week? Save ourselves a bit of time? Uh, let's just do that. Guess we can. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a brand new podcast presented by us, Kane and Abel, two people with the exact same voice. Each week we will bring you news, views and in-depth interviews from the world of entertainment. So if you have an interest in magic, circus, variety, comedy or just listening to a good story, make sure you subscribe to Talking Tricks on iTunes and Hobby. So we will waste no time in getting into it with today's guest. Paul Beck joins us in... Oh, that's why we can't use the oh, same one. It's not Paul this week. It was enjoyable, the Paul one. I enjoyed it. There was information online that at least 12 other people enjoyed it as well. But yeah, it wasn't enjoyable enough to do it all over again. Uh, we've got different guests. We have we? we have got different guests. If you if you enjoyed the Paul DeBeck episode, help more than 12 people listen to it. Help the podcast grow. Say lovely and nice things. But in answer to your question, Kane. This week's well, guest. It wasn't a question, it was just a statement, really. In response to your statement, yeah, we've got guests every week. We've got more guests. It's not just Paul DeBeck week in, week out. Thank goodness. We've got Griffin and Jones. They are a pair of magicians, a pair of variety performers, top grafters, and just really lovely, nice blokes. I interviewed them during the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. It's a really interesting conversation, very relevant to things that are going on this week. And I'm going to go back in time. Off you go then. Now, to August, to celebrate and and speak to Griffin and Jones. All right, cool. Well, you go off, you travel back in time to interview Griffin and Jones. I'm just going to go down to the pub, actually. I'm for... Yes, (laughs) you're pulling a face there that no one can see. Who are you going to the pub with? Yeah, I knew that that's the expression you were making. But I think... As this is an audio only, you really do need to specify when you talk. You, like, you can't just do facial expressions. Well, it's fine if you're going to do a um, description of the facial impressions and what they possibly mean at that point. My facial expression, for the listener that doesn't know, we're well, saying... I think they know what it is now. Who are you going to the pub with? Well, I've, I've arranged to meet uh, one of my friends, actually, who... Um, I, I'm not going to say who it is because it's actually my most famous celebrity friend. Mm. I'm just going to go and meet him in the pub now. So uh, I'll see you later. Right, you, you go, go off and do your thing. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna head off now. Yeah, just go if you're going, mate. All right, just, just get. Why are you lingering? Um, well, I, I was just trying to decide whether I should exit through this, through the creaky door, or if I should go down the staircase here. Doesn't matter. Either's fine. I thought you had a sound effect you wanted to play at that point. Yeah, I haven't worked out which is the cheapest one yet, so I'm just going to put in another sound effect later on, okay? So just go, yeah. leave the studio, right? But just don't specify which route you're taking. And you'll put it on afterwards. I'll put in whichever one it is afterwards. Understood. Fine. Have a nice time. I'm going to go now. I'm leaving. Off I go. Through the creaky door... The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. 
So joining us now on Talking Tricks are the pioneers of slapdash magic, Griffin and Jones. Boys, nice to see you. Thank you for talking Thank to you. us. But now, award-winning. Award-winning. Award Damn right, award-winning. For, uh, for the first time at Edinburgh Fringe, we've got recognition. We have arguably the greatest accolade a show can have. We have the Derek Award for Spirit of the Fringe. I know what you're thinking, I haven't heard of it. Well, let me tell you, neither had we. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely. It's, it's, not, it's not one of the big awards. It's uh, it's a small sort of independent thing, but it's it's just nice. Isn't it, it was really nice. Bless his heart. So we see, we see this guy. His name his name is Derek. Yep. Funnily enough, he says he has a panel of twenty one judges. I've only ever met him, so I'm not. I can't cast aspersions as to whether that's true or not. And at the end of our show yesterday, it was a lovely show yesterday as well. And so we were doing the ladies and gentlemen, good night, thank you very much. Everyone's clapping, and I could just see him walking towards the stage, holding what looks like a cricket trophy. <laughs> and he just got on stage and said, and said, sorry. And he said this to the audience. He was like, sorry, I'm not part of this. I just want to say I've been seeing these guys for every year for the last five years, and I think it's time they were recognised as the Derek Award Spirit of the Fringe 2018. Spirit of the Fringe. And the audience went crazy, and we're, and we're there going, we, I didn't want to be like, guys, like, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, think he, I think he might have made this one up. Um, but then gave us, and it was, bless his heart, it was engraved and everything, it yeah, didn't have our names yeah. on it. it had, like, I, I thought it would genuinely just have, have like some kind of random plaque. Like you maybe scrubbed out like Karate Champion '98. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It said. I, I mean, I think you're underselling this a little bit. But um, yeah, no, it's just it's yeah, it's a small independent award, and we're we're very happy to to have it. Although we were saying like, what a great ending to the show. Maybe next year we'll just hire someone to come in at the end of the show every <laughs> night with an award and and sort of throw it at us, get a standing ovation, and maybe double our hats. Who knows? Who knows? Every day someone just comes up with an award. <laughs> Well, to be honest, if anyone's going to win the Derek Spirit of the Fringe Award, it should be two guys that are doing, on average, three shows a day, but plenty more than that. Talk to me about the shows. Most people worry and plan the whole year about writing one Edinburgh Fringe show. <laughs> you lads have brought a load up that you've written, and then you're also part of the Magic Gala and lots of other things I'm sure you can tell us about. So talk to us about the Griffin and Jones offerings that were <laughs> the 2018 Edinburgh Fringe. The they Griffin are, and Jones brand, as yeah. it were. They are, they are many-fold this year. Uh, so in terms of the main show, we've got Griffin and Jones Trickerish All Sorts, which is our, our hour-long magic show. I mean, <clears throat> you say worry about writing a new show. It's about half a new show, I think. Yeah, we wrote half, like, <coughs> of the hour, half an hour is new, and half an hour is some of the best stuff we've been doing over the last few years, because it's much easier to change the audience than the material. Yeah. So yeah, so we wrote half an hour new magic show, and then, so we also run a 1am cabaret called The Locking Cabaret, so we just host, so we don't really need to write for that, we just ask about at 1am, and then just book some of our favourite acts, get them in and let them do all the work for us, a really, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the two new shows we brought up this year is we brought up our show Talking to the Dead, a seance, uh, which is a legitimate Victorian seance round the table. Uh, we've been doing that for a couple of years now, but it's the first time we brought it up to the Fringe, so we were really nervous. So we just did it for split weekends, just weekend runs of it kind of thing throughout the Fringe. But people liked it and like, it sold out. We were like, no one was more surprised than we were. Yeah, because it's a risk. We've, we've never done the paid Fringe before. We've always gone free Fringe, so the risk of having a financial commitment like that and having to rely on people actually booking tickets in advance and planning ahead and wanting to see the show you know with the free fringe you're so reliant on people just going into your show on a whim effectively you know some people are going to plan ahead but 
you've, you've got that edge that it's free to get in so you can just pull people off the street and they can make a last minute decision that's a lot less likely I think with a ticketed show so it's really lovely that people are are coming along and seem to be enjoying it as well yeah indeed and the other show we brought up is a show so we basically just uh we basically just damn down your thing you're going god you wrote four shows you go we haven't really so the, the <laughs> seance we wrote three years ago the magic is the magic show is a half hour new one the locking cabaret we don't bother writing for we just ask about and the final one which is our uh, which is our horror play father of lies we didn't write <laughs> it was um it was written by two other guys it's like a lecture style like horror play it's sort of um, like we reenact scenes and sort of tell stories and things like that uh, but that was written a couple of years ago by two other guys and our director and producer for it literally bought the rights and then said to us oh by the way boys you're doing this horror play <laughs> um, because he's the same guy that, um, that directs our, uh, our sales show and we asked him if we could bring it up to the fringe and he said well if I buy it, if I book out a room I'm going to need to book it out for the month and we went oh we don't want to do a month worth of seances it'll be too much hard work and he was like okay and then the next thing we knew, we looked at the registry form on the Edinburgh Fringe website, and he was like, oh, yeah, you're doing ten nights of that new horror play. Get learning. <laughs> and, um, so that was pretty much how that came about. So, yeah, this was really the baby run of Father of Lies, which is, again, it's just storytelling and horror, so it was really, like, hammering in the script and stuff. But we were really pleased with it. It's, it's, it's coming together really nicely, considering... I mean, we, we met doing theatre doing amateur theatre in Guildford. This is the first play that we've done in, God, years now. It's certainly the first thing we, that we've performed together in about six years that we haven't written ourselves. Yeah, 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 very um, true. So it was, it, was a, it was a bit of a kind of getting back into the old swing of things and pretending we were actors. But it's a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. We've had a, we've had a lovely fringe. It has been. It has been a lovely fringe. So the two horrory sort of mm. shows, they're both on the paid friends, the other two are on the PBH. Yeah. Uh, why and who made the decision to put those two on the paid? And again, how have you found um, being on the paid fringe? And might that lead to you going away from the free model completely? So uh, there were a couple of reasons why we took those shows to the paid fringe. One, because our producer and director also happens to be the man who runs Sweet Venues. So that, that was always the way that that was going to go. But also, particularly for the seance, it wouldn't work on the free fringe model because we need complete control of the room that we perform in. We need it to be able to be pitch black. We need it to be as quiet as possible. And we need to have the room to ourselves to be able to completely rearrange it, rip all the chairs out, set up a big round table with limited number of seats around it. It just... The, the free fringe isn't right for that sort of thing. It's a wonderful model uh, for, for comedy and magic and so many other things, but it, it would never work for that show, would it? No, and like, we're really happy on the free fringe. Like, in terms of the magic show and the cabaret, like, we have no desire to move away from the free fringe because it's been really good to us. Those are the shows that make it worth coming back financially. Mm. And, uh, and just in terms of our audiences, we, you know, you get so over, we've been bringing the cabaret and the magic show to the fringe for five years now. And you see a lot of the same people that come back time and time again, and they, they always know where you are, they always know where they can find you. And it's, it's, it works, it's good. And I think it's a really fair model for fringe people. It makes it accessible for everyone yeah it's a fair way it's certainly the only way that uh, me and my brother could come up to the fringe yeah, and yeah. It, it's funny that you mention um, that you do get regular repeat offenders I yeah. find the more years we come uh, the less flyering we have to do because you can kind of rely on more people to come Fantastic. to the room I want to talk about the seance because I, I know that you guys are comedy magic double act which mm -hmm. 
obviously I have a fondness. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that I like. Comedy magic it's, a, it's a shame Ed's not here now. I wanted this podcast to be like a bit like West Side Story where we do all approach <laughs> like each other. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Ten paces turn and magic. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that scene in uh, Anchorman. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, perfect. perfect. Yeah, yeah. Or should yeah. we just do like a like a magic version of wife swap? So it could be like <laughs> it could be like Kane and Jones and Griffin and Abel. I think it'd be amazing. I think it'd be amazing. Oh, it sounds great because well, one of us is a lot messier than the other one. So uh, <laughs> one of you's gonna have your hands full more than the other one with that. Oh, that would that would be an exciting thing to discover. I like right? the fact you're just going with one of us. You're not, <laughs> you're not telling us who's getting the short end of that straw. <laughs> The reason I mentioned the comedy, the, the seance down, there's a line on the poster that I really love, and I'm sorry if I misquote this. I don't go for it. It's, um, don't believe in ghosts, neither do we. Uh, d- neither uh, did we. Neither did we. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, don't believe in ghosts, neither did we. It's, so, it's quite enigmatic, isn't it? It's, it says everything and nothing. It's wonderful. It does. And so is this a serious seance, or is there humour and stuff in it? Or completely 100% serious. For the kind of stuff that we want to do with it, the idea is basically it's not a magic show. There are no tricks in it, nothing like that. It's, it's purely down the line. It's, it's what sort of the Victorian spiritualists would have done in their drawing room seances. So we rely on you know things like pendulum swinging and glass moving, which, as I'm sure you well know, are things that just work. There's no there's no trick to it, that sort of thing. Beyond that, it's it's building up the atmosphere and the expectation in the audiences to the point that they start scaring themselves and start believing that they're experiencing otherworldly things and. By the time it's pitch black at the end, hopefully start just hallucinating and experiencing spirit happenings. Yeah, because that's the thing. Like we worked out very early on. What, we, what effectively what we've got is twelve or fourteen people in a room. We're telling them a, a long narrative ghost story effectively for 45 minutes and they're moving glasses and pendulum swingings and then after that 45 minutes of us telling them ghost stories them seeing glasses move we just turn all the lights out and they sit there in the dark and of course they're going to scare themselves we just spent 45 minutes telling them a ghost story and turning the, and then we turn the lights off and their imagination will do the rest yeah um, so in that format humour would just dispel all of the tension that we're trying to build. It was very difficult for us, wasn't it, when we first started doing the seance show, because the instinct is to crack jokes and make people laugh. What this is, is this is scratching our itch, because all of the stuff we do on stage is just, we just like telling silly jokes and performing what we like to believe is really good, strong magic. But it's all very light-hearted and silly, and there's lots of just playing around with the audience. But we both have a really a, a, a fondness for horror theatre and for very intense horror theatre. Um, but we know we knew we couldn't in any way, shape, or form merge that with the magic act because it just wouldn't work. So the idea between doing this séance and also this new horror play is we hope that, for want of a better phrase, the fans. I know you can't see air quotes on. The <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I know that sounds arrogant. We hope that the fans um, that that know us for the magic will suddenly go. Are you all, like like? Do you know that Griffin and Jones do this weird sideline in like really serious like Victorian seancey ghost stories and all this kind of? It's it's basically it's like it's like Griffin and Jones's dirty little secret on the side. We, we've sort of split the brand a little bit, haven't we? So we, we've got we've got two two lots of Griffin and Jones. We've got the comedy magic Griffin and Jones. We've got the horror Griffin and Jones. Like last night at, at the Lock In Cabaret, there were some people in who were doing another horror show at the Fringe, uh, Urban Death, which I've heard is amazing. We're not going to get to see it because it clashes with our shows. Uh, and they'd come to see us do Father of Lies. They didn't know who we 
were, they'd just come because it was another horror piece. Then they rocked up at this raucous, drunken, late-night cabaret, and they see us up on stage clowning around and shouting at the audience. And I think it was a bit of a system shock for them that it's such a different side of us. Literally, they came up to us afterwards, and they were, they were like, it took us so long to actually confirm. And I'm like, they were like... Are those the same guys? <laughs> because they were just scowling at us for an hour in the dark, telling us scary stories. And now they're up on stage, you know, making fun of the audience and doing card tricks. And we're like, yeah, those are the same guys. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Paint me a picture of the seance, because I'm picturing you around the table yes. with, with a small group of people, mm -hmm. very much kind of the traditional seance as you would picture it. Is that the kind of the thing you're doing? That's exactly what it is. It's all of us sat around a table. Uh, the room's lit only by candlelight. As we do each of the sections of the seance, we extinguish another candle. So the room's getting gradually darker and darker towards the end as we get closer to, to the pitch black section of the seance. But yes, it's a very traditionally looking seance. <coughs> you know, uh, for the most part, all of the props wouldn't be alien in a Victorian seance room. There are one or two. Because yeah. We're not saying, oh, let's go back to Victorian times. We're just saying, we're going to use the tools and techniques that the Victorian spiritualists use. So yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not dressed in the you know, like top hats and frock coats or anything nonsense like that, and we're not talking in weird Dickensian ways. It's a modern-day seance, but we just say to the audience, look, we're going to do it the way the, way the Victorians did, because that's when, because that's when table seances started. It was in that era kind of thing. Um, it's kind of when they finished as well, really. Yes. They're not such a thing anymore. You know, that was the age of the, of, of the seance. Indeed, in, yeah. In the famous classical sense. Modern day seances aren't seances anymore, they've moved to that whole kind of, that, that dirty kind of psychic way of it, that Sally Morgan, that kind of Derek Akora that nobody wants to be a part of because it's a horrible world. <laughs> um, but with our seance, like it's, like I want to, so we, we genuinely try and convince people. They know it's a, it's a play, it's, a, it's listed in theatre, so we, which gives us complete carte blanche to lie through our teeth. There's a weird thing where they, they start to forget that it's a show because it's just around one table. So when we tell them in dead seriousness that we're gonna contact the spirit of this dead girl, they just believe you regardless of the fact that we have explained to them and they are well aware that this is a play. It's a theatrical play that we have written. But halfway through, uh, ask anyone around that table if they're contacting a dead girl and a lot of them will tell you yes because it's, too, it's far too personal. Without giving too much away, because I'm hoping people might listen to this and then attend the seance yep. itself, I kind of wanted to, you kind of preempted the question I was about to ask then about the charlatans, to, mm -hmm. to use a better word, um, that kind of give the impression they are still speaking to relatives and yeah, passed yeah. over to the other side. With your seance, is this, it's one story and one spirit you're contacting, you're not kind of doing guesswork and stuff like that with, no, with no. audience members? We, we, we were so particular about this. When we first wrote it, we wanted at no point even to open up the opportunity for someone in that room to think, oh, my granny's coming through or whatever. So right from the beginning, we tell the audience who it is that we'll be contacting, and that's all we do. And we, have, we do have contingency, but it's never happened. We've probably run the seance maybe 35, 40 times now, because um, we don't do it that regularly. Um, so we run maybe 35, 40 times, and at the start, we mapped out these contingency plans, because the worst thing for us is if we're sat in the dark and someone says, 
you know, I can see something, and we go, oh yes, because that's perfect, you know, we're like, yes, who can you see? And they're like, I can see my granddad. And then that, at that moment, we, we have contingency plans to stop that from happening, because yeah. it is a theatre show, we don't actually want you to believe that your nan, or your mum, or your sister, or whatever is coming through and telling you that they're, for, because it's a theatre show, it's a play, I'm not trying to change anyone's beliefs, we get a real mix of people that come. You get Some days you get a room full of hardened sceptics and the show works perfectly and it's wonderful and they take that away. Some days you get properly, deeply belief people who just, they 100% believe everything and the show works the same. People take away from it what they take away. I genuinely think no one leaves that room having their beliefs changed, but within that hour, they all believe, if that makes sense. Yeah, we wanted to stay as far away from that slippery slope of the kind of the psychic Sally kind of approach as we could possibly get because that's not what we are, what we do, or what we want to be a part of in any sense at all. Looking outside of the fringe, then, what's the kind of fu- future plans for this show? We've we've got plans for it. At the moment, the only concrete plans we've got is we're going to be running Father of Lies, which is the horror play, and Talking to the Dead, a seance, at Brighton Horror Fest at the end of October. Uh, I can't remember the dates off the top of my head because we're three weeks into Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> and my mind has turned to mush. The idea with the sales is it's to we want to take it to people's homes for like private after dinner entertainment and stuff like that. That's the idea of it because it's a completely ungimmick, just normal. You know what I mean? If, if you give us somewhere where we can set up a small like, like a table that we can sit around, we can do it for them. And so that's the idea. I like the idea of having it as kooky after dinner entertainment as something different. But yeah, we'd like to tour it around. That's the, the, half the reason why we take we, we took on the horror play as well is because the idea of touring around to a public show a show that can only seat 12 people funnily enough we're not going to make enough money from selling 12 tickets a night split between three of us you know me steve and our producer it's not going to work but the idea was we tour father of lies which is a play that can play to a thousand people if needs be and and then we sell uh, we sell the premium tickets for the seance afterwards for anyone who wants to do that so the idea is we're going to try and set up a small regional tour of those plays, um, which we're largely leaving in the hands of our director and producer because we are absolutely rubbish <laughs> at Yeah, and we've got, we've got potential ideas to kind of expand the, the, the horror brand of Griffin and Jones in the future to, to sort of build up little packages of double bills and plays and collections of pieces and things like that so we can take it to the corporate market as well. I mean, the idea of having a seance almost like a corporate team building sort of event could be could be very interesting and yet yeah, just see where we can take them really sky's the limit i think it's really interesting and exciting to hear about um you know your plans to maybe you know after dinner and, and corporate seances which is things i i haven't thought of and wouldn't <laughs> thought of which kind of leads me on on to kind of my next question and where else do you kind of work throughout the year you're both quite creative guys so i'd be keen to hear where where griffin and jones pop up performing <laughs> um, uh, over the year i mean obviously we do we do a few of the the uk fringe festivals edinburgh fringe uh, brighton fringe started doing guildford fringe as well Beyond that, a lot of it is is the cabaret and the variety scene. You just sort of bounce around the country, just performing at various mixed bill shows as the the token magicians. Uh, as I'm sure you're very familiar with that uh, that that job. And then yeah, it's 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 picking up. Usually off the back of those private bookings, 
uh, whether that be corporate or like just someone's, you know, oh, you know, if it's, oh, I'm having a fortieth. Can yeah, you, can, yeah. You, can you come to the uh, upstairs of a you know upstairs of a pub function room, um, which is as, as unglamorous as that sounds. It's you know it's, it's nature of the job, and some of the times those can be the most fun gigs, yeah. especially if they've seen you before and all this stuff. We do do bits and pieces of close-up work, although we are a stage magic double act. We that's if you go on our website, you will see no evidence of us doing close-up magic. But if people see us at a show and they ask us, we're like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously we do do close-up magic. And apart from that, we do we do lots of bits and bits and pieces of just different kind of performing work, acting jobs, you know that kind of stuff. You know, we work with Goodwood, do bits and pieces, yeah, just around the country, uh, historical sites as well. You know, uh, just yeah, acting jobs, promo jobs, whatever we can turn our existing talents to to pay the bills, really. Yeah, it's it's, it's really strange once you be, like once you become like a, a basically rent rent a mouth. What Steve and I have worked out is, if you stick us both on a mic and, and in front of an audience, regardless of the audience, usually we can get them. Whether that's just hosting, or whether that's introducing, or whether that's being, being MC for something. Like, uh, last year we did the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and for three solid days, for ten hours a day, Steve and I co uh, commentated on push, uh, on like, uh, you know, like pedal, pe pedal go, -kart go kart races. Yeah. It was the stupidest thing in the world. Literally, it was a tiny little, and so grown adults were in child's pedal car go karts racing around the track for three days, and Steve and I commented, it, commentated on it as if it was the most dangerous sport in the world over a tannoy system to thousands of people for, yeah, for 10 hours a day for three days straight. And it was so much fun. Um, but it's just when, when you become those kind of renter voices, like the people like to have us for things because they know that the, the diff most difficult thing when you're doing what you'd call like walk around acts, you know, we do, we've done stuff at like the Tower of London and all that kind of stuff. What people realize is, it, once you, if you can get a couple of actors together who have already have that rapport, they can just leave you be to do your stuff. So when they book Steve and I, all they, they know that all they need to do is give us the give us the outfit, you know, give us the uh, give us the brief, give, give us the brief, give us the out, uh, give us the costume, and just sort of push us out into the public. And and after ten hours, we'd have done a very good job for them. So um, yeah, we do a lot of that, just kind of yeah, again, rent a personality kind of thing. Something that. Uh... Kane and I haven't done a lot of, but we've done a bit of, and, and we I know, initially thought, oh, this is great. It's just the talking bit without the magic. Yes. <laughs> it's, one, yeah. it's one less stress. Yeah. Um, do you find it less stressful? I mean, to commentate for 10 hours straight on anything, did you run out of things to say? Do you still find it as stressful when the tricks are, are gone? We didn't know. It, 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 you're absolutely right. It takes all the stress out of it commentating for 10 hours our voices were completely shredded by the end of the first day but what we found very quickly was that we sort of fell into patterns of back and forths and and you know loops of sound bites and commentating bits yeah. that we created on the fly because obviously it, it, it was a thing where the audience was very transient and the people who were taking part and racing the go-karts were just it was a kind of come and have a go thing so it wasn't like people were stuck with us all day listening to the same crap over and over again but it's like we, it's like we said it's easier to change the audience than the material absolutely 100 around 100%. but i think over especially over the years like because um when we first started our, our script was our everything we would just be we would script every little nuance because we were just like, as long as we've got that script, we can then relax. Yeah. And we and within the uh, magic shows, and obviously all the horror plays and stuff like that, those are scripted. And within the magic shows, we still always tightly script everything, but we also now know that if, if something changes or we fancy not doing it, both of us are, have been on stage in front of audiences for long enough now that we just 
don't, it doesn't bother us. So the cabaret, like the Lock-in Cabaret now, we don't have really, you form them over the month, but we didn't write standard compare bits where we'd be like, we'll do this, then we'll do that, we'll do that. We just like, 30 seconds before we're, all, before we're on stage at the Lock-in Cabaret, you know, the music's piping up, welcome to the stage, Griffin Jones, we come up, I have no idea what I'm about to say. Not, not a clue, I've no idea who I'm about to talk to, we do a lot of crowd work. Once you relax, the audience sees you relax and you know you've got the, you've got the chops, you've got the skills to be able to just chat and be, and hold that room's attention for five minutes. And it's just that, basically, it's not, I'd say it was no more or less stressful than learning a script and doing a magic trick, but you just learn how to, how to work a room. Yeah, it's just, it's a different skill, isn't it? But obviously it's nice as well to have something to fall back on. So, you know, we could drop back into a script or do a trick if we found that we were, you know, floundering or losing the room. It's never happened yet, but if it does, then we know that we could seamlessly transition into something that we do know and have done before and we know is a, a bankable piece of work. Yeah, that's a, like, you, you often see people who, who like, do all that kind of improv stuff and you go... When that falls flat, you've got sod all to fall back on. <laughs> but if, you know, if I'm bantering with the audience and they're just giving you nothing, you go, well, you're about to get a script and a trick because, <laughs> because I know you're like that. Because, I know, because this has worked hundreds of times before and they always laugh and the trick always works. So congratulations, you've killed my spontaneity. <laughs> I guess is what it is. I love it. You could have had something unique <laughs> and different and just for you, but no, you're getting a script and a trick <laughs> that thousands of other people have had. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Hi, I'm Alex Opal. Come visit us at opals.co.uk to find your next prop. Griffin and Jones on Talking Tricks. Well, we're about halfway through the interview with these guys. It's really, really got some great stuff coming from them i've really enjoyed listening to it so far i think they're both lovely blokes interesting great to hear about the brighton horror fest and we're going to get into real kind of trickiness with them in a minute we're going to talk about all the kind of tricks that they do how they develop the tricks that they perform so this is going to get a bit a bit geeky a bit techy for you trickers this is really is the meat of talking tricks we are truly talking tricks with griffin and jones do us a favor uh, let us know if you've enjoyed this podcast and at the end of it uh, share it around with the world hopefully let some other people find about it another great way to help us grow as a podcast is um subscribing to it via either podbean or itunes and of course rating all that stuff it helps us grow as a podcast so please do do that and uh, we'll get back into the meat of it with Griffin and Jones. You mentioned skills a minute ago. I kind of want to talk to you about skills yep. because I know you do a straight jacket escape. Very yep. funny straight jacket escape. Thank you. What other kind of skills apart from magic do you guys do? Talking esque apology, if there's any other kind of circusy things that you do? With proper like variety schmucks. Like magic's our, that's our, you know, A game, our profession kind of thing. Uh, but between us, so I'll go through mine and Steve will go through his because I, I will forget the name I'll, of Steve. I'll forget mine yeah. as well, I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah. So, as well as magic, I can I can juggle, so I can club juggle, I can fire juggle, I used to juggle kitchen knives and that kind of thing. I also learned how to fire eat and I can do a Diablo, I can yo-yo, I can just, you know what I mean? And they're all just silly little things, but they sort of, they they just sort of colour colour you in as, a, as, as an act kind of thing. Um, we've bought stilts to learn stilt walking just for fun. 
what unicycles to learn to ride those to be again we never used them in the act but no, we've, 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 we've got them if we decided one day that we needed to use them for something dabble with sideshow as well you know human blockhead all of that kind of classic glass walking. stuff glass walking do some balloon modeling do I, I'm a hypnotist as well uh, just yeah we turn our hands to whatever interests us and if we find that we can make it work in the context of a thing then we'll we'll throw it into the mix but yeah yeah we, we don't like to be restricted just by magic in, well, in that, the classic that's, that's the thing i think when you're a variety artist every day is a school day so you know like last year we went on a clowning workshop because we were like i think that might be really interesting to learn, just learn more sort of physicality <laughs> clowning and that wasn't within the mind of putting together a silent clown show or anything like that but the first five minutes of this year's new magic show is a silent piece to music and a trick and we've never done that before ever and i love it and it's like reading two reviews we've had so far which have been very nice reviews and very um, we're very pleased with them both of them has, have specifically mentioned that opening trick as one of their favorite bits and it makes us so happy because it's one of our favorite bits because it's so new and it's a new skill and we're like the new skill we learned is working and it's, <laughs> it's like it's worth it um, but that's how the sales came about we just uh, we know of, uh, we know a bloke called Paul Vudini, obviously, and because uh, that, because that's the name of a man who runs seances. Absolutely. And uh, and he was running seance workshops, and we went, yeah, let's go on a seance workshop, and then we did. I mean, it. I, you know, we read a couple of his books beforehand, so I was I was aware of his work, but um, yeah. And then we both went on these seance workshops and went, yes, yes, let's have a seance. Uh, and then, and then a year and a half later, we'd written one and we're doing it. Yeah, so just like we we we're just big skill monkeys. We like to learn different things. Um, like I, we, we both just for no apparent reason, with no, idea, with no desire to ever show anybody, both of us set ourselves a challenge to learn to solve a Rubik's Cube in under a minute. And we did. And Never we, done it on stage. And I have no, I have absolutely no desire to ever show anybody that I can solve a Rubik's Cube in under a minute, but I can. <laughs> oh, I can. <laughs> Your answers might differ on, yep. on this question, so I'd be interested to hear has that always kind of been the way with you guys? Have you always had a desire to learn new skills? If you see something cool, think, I want to do that. Or is there a turning point in your lives? Uh, were you those annoying children that had to have something new and learn it? Or was there a turning point in your lives when you decided to start, you know, learning as much and becoming a jack of all trades? I, th I think that's something that I've always loved and always wanted to do. Yeah, you know, you see something cool and you go, I want to be able to do that. And I mean, that's how, that's how I got started in magic. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, even before I really knew what magicians did or what constituted magic as a little kid, I'd seen magicians at birthday parties and I thought, I, I want to know how that works. I want to know how to do it. You know, I was, I was very much the kid who would sort of take all my toys apart to figure out how they worked and then put them back together and all that kind of stuff. Um, just that hunger for learning. And I love learning new skills. It's something that just excites me. See, I wasn't, I wasn't that kid. Like, I, I, was, I was a kid who was always fascinated. I, I knew I loved variety and magic and juggling and just circusy kind of things. I knew I loved that because I always used to love watching it. You know, I, 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 was, I was the kid that would, you know, would, would always stop and watch street performers and that kind of thing. And, you know, whenever there was, a, like, a, a magician on the TV, I'd make sure I'd recorded it and watched it kind of thing. But I just, I always assumed, because I'm, I'm naturally, and still am, I'm naturally the clumsiest person you'll ever meet. Like, you, you wouldn't believe the things that I can drop. Like, it's insane. Um, like... Just to put this in perspective, yesterday at the end of our show, we were given the Derek Award for the Spirit of the Fringe. 20 minutes later, he'd managed to break it. 
I, I, bro- <laughs> I, bro- I broke it. I so bro- there I was fixing it. Yeah. Like, just don't touch things, Nate, for no. God's sake. <laughs> so, so yeah, I just always, basically, it's like, it's like a sad story. I always assumed that I couldn't. I always assumed that I, I probably couldn't juggle. I wouldn't be able to learn sleight of hand magic because I just can't. Um, and then, literally, I, two things happened. I remember them. They happened very close together. Firstly, I saw someone, I used to be a pastry chef before I decided to do this. I was, so I was working, I was working in kitchens, I was a pastry chef, and one of the waiters started juggling three lemons, and I, remember, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And so I just picked, like, in a kind of, like, I'd never juggled anything before in my life, like, I couldn't juggle two, you know what I mean? And I just picked them up, and I had three lemons in my hand, and I did the quickest, and the, like a single cascade, just three, do, 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 caught them, and I went, <gasps> that that was easy. <laughs> I, could just, I could just do it. So then, like, then I was just, I was that, in, I was intolerable. In, like, just every time someone wasn't watching me in a kitchen, I'd be juggling fruit. Um, and then around about the same time, so Steve and I had been, been working together in our local theatre scene for a while. And I'd learnt, when, as, as uh, I was going to say, as a kid, I'd seen as a kid, like a, um, like a match vanish. Like a, you know, like a, um, just a small matchstick vanish. And I'd applied that same one when, because I used to smoke at the time, I was about 18. Uh, and I was, sort of, I was doing a very simple cigarette vanish outside of our rehearsal when we were um, rehearsing for, it was like some sort of Shakespeare nonsense probably. And um, let's be honest. And um, so I, I was vanishing my cigarette. And Steve, who had, who had already got a, a collection of magic DVDs, and I'd, neither of us knew that either of us were interested in magic, went, oh, I've got a, a DVD on cigarette magic. Do you want to borrow it? And I was like, yeah, 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 awesome. <laughs> And uh, Steve gave me this DVD, and I, I, I can't, like, this sounds like such hyperbole and such nonsense, but, so Steve gave me a DVD, and it was the Tom Mullica Greater Magic Video Library DVD, and I, I'm not making this up, that video changed my life, because I watched it, and it was like two or three minutes on actual cigarette magic, the rest of the hour was cards and silliness and... And I'd never seen magic performed like that. I'd never seen someone be so funny, but so good. So I learned every, like, I must have watched that video five or six times in one week, and I learned every single trick on that thing. Half of which is still my close-up act. And um, so I just learned how to control cards. And I was like, oh my God, like, when I used to watch David Blaine as a 10-year-old, like, put a card in the middle and make it jump to the top. I can do that now! So I, was, I, I wasn't that kid, but at the age of 18, when I learned I could do it through watching this Tom Mulliker, um thing, who, who is still, hands down, my favourite magician. He makes me laugh like no-one else, and I think he is a sensationally gifted, slight hand magician. But watching that DVD, I was like... <gasps> and then Steve and I, just with our, again, with the, dra- with the drama group, we came up to the Edinburgh Fringe as punters, and by that point, Steve had lent me a few more DVDs. We went and saw a few magic shows like Pete Furman and Barry and Stewart and Ali Cook. And we watched their magic shows. And not, with, with no disrespect to those guys, we watched them and went, we could do that. We could be those guys. Mm. So we spent a year writing 10 minutes and then did, did 10 minutes just before the Fringe. And then luckily just got picked up by another just mixed bill show who said, come and do some spots at the Fringe. So suddenly we were, we were sort of there with our 10 minutes of material, this is eight years ago now, uh, doing tricks at the Fringe. And yeah, like I say, it just happened really quickly. I wasn't that kid. I wasn't the guy that was doing, you know, as a kid I couldn't do anything. And then at the age of 18 I was like, I can juggle and I can fire eat and get me a unicycle. I can't ride that unicycle. <laughs> the unicycle is the one thing I haven't actually properly learned. Um, but yeah, so it just, I just became that guy that went, I am clumsy and fumbly, but... I'm also quite funny because I, I, just, I just about stopped doing stand-up comedy by the age of about 20 because I, I was bad at it and it was making me unhappy. 
<laughs> it's just this miserable life, isn't it? Just going around on your own. But I was like, if there's someone else with me and we've got these tricks, then even if I'm not funny, I've got a trick. So it doesn't matter. If you don't laugh, the trick will still get you. And that's still very much our kind of backbone of when we write, we write without fear because you go, the trick's good. I know the trick's good because at the end of the day, something vanishing and reappearing is damn good. And so that it's gonna, you're going to clap. So even if we're not funny, you'll get something. And that's, so, that, so now we write without fear. That's our thing. I'm keen to hear about how you guys write and come up with material together. Is it often one of you might have an idea and come and say, I've got a great idea, or you, do you sit down and go, let's come up with a great idea? What's the creation process like for you both? Sometimes it's a bit of both, but the more successful model is the first one of those, where one of us will, will have the germ of an idea and pitch it to the other one. Because let's face it, we, you know, we've, we've had, and I'm sure you guys have as well, those times where you're like, right, we need another routine for the new show, and you, you sit down and you go, right, we are going to write a routine, and you just sit there staring into space for a day, and you're, you're no closer to anything at the end of it. Whereas if you have that moment of inspiration, and you can pitch it to the other person, then you've got, you've got the start of a process. That's when we can start bouncing ideas off each other. Like, oh my God, being part of a double act makes things so much easier. I would hate to have to write this stuff on my own. Because that's the thing, and I think being part of a double act, especially like you guys are probably better than us at it in terms of the editing part of it. You have to have that enough respect that when Steve says something and says, this is a great idea for a trick, I, I, I respect him enough to believe him, but he also respects me enough that if I say to him, that's awful, that's, then that's not a problem. We're not like, well, why are we bothering working together? Yeah. You just go, no, 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 I'm saying it because I care about the act. Yeah. And that doesn't often happen. We, we are very similar. We always come at things from different angles, but we have very similar goals in terms of the trick. But usually, again, it is, it's that germ of an idea. It's that little seed. And then so I would just say, like, one of our tricks now, I guess I can sort of pan out. It doesn't really, it's not really, it's for, this is for magicians and things, so I can sort of say, not in terms of method, but in terms of, so Steve and I were in a charity shop. We, we just wanted to buy some cheap wine glasses for another trick that we existingly did and in this charity shop there was just at the counter there was a small um, pot of like you know like noise putty fart putty you know you stick your fingers into the pot and it makes a noise so we just bought it so we something interesting about that so we, we sat, sat back at, sat back at my house just chatting through some other stuff so I just had this I, I took it out of the pot I just had this putty in my hands and I was going hmm and so I, and then just with my other hand I just folded a card up and put it inside and sealed it in there and went imagine if you could get someone's signed card inside a putty inside their hand so we worked that through, you know, doing like, you know, the special, you know, ways you can quickly fold a card on the deck. And then we, you know, so they hold it, then you take it and you load it back in, and it goes back into the hand and they don't realise they're holding it. And we went, we went, that's good, that's good. It's not enough. It's not enough. There's got to be something bigger that we can do with this. And we'd had a routine, a, di a totally separate routine that we've been doing in the stage act for a couple of years, which was our, our presentation of the Pegasus page. A page across kind yeah. of thing. But we were never happy with that routine. We wrote it sort of almost on commission for a show. We had, we had to write a new routine for a show. And we came up with a presentation, which was fine. It, it fit, fit the brief. But it wasn't right for Griffin and Jones for, for, the, for the stage act. And so it just it suddenly it made sense to have the audience member look at a page in a book over here. And then the page appears inside this ball of goo that they're holding and and suddenly one of our signature routines was born uh, yeah i think that's arguably it's such a it's such a strong trick that it's been in, it's been in the act for a good couple of years now and it's still in this year's show that's one of the ones we brought back for this year's show and it's it's like the second or third trick 
in the show, and it's still just it like gasp. It's just it's. Pro- but that just came out of me just seeing fart putty, and that we don't. It's not actually fart putty. I mean, we make our own. You can find recipes online for making your own slime. Yeah. Uh, but it just came out of me going. It's sort of because it's because you see so many like um, like things where thing like either a card or a page or an object appears in like a box, but a box is something that is only created to hold something, so it's instantly suspicious. If you give someone an empty box to hold onto, you go, well, I'm either going to put something in it or something's going to appear in it, because it's a box. Yeah. There has to be something inside it. With goo, you go, well, that's just, it's just slime in my hands. That's all it is. And you go, well, I could have hidden something inside it, but they don't, it's a real kind of, so in their mind, they can't backtrack enough to go, when would you have got that? Because it's in my, so again, it's just, we try and iron out all those little creases just to make it really, really strong. Because, what people are really surprised when they see our act is, well, a lot of the time, it sounds arrogant to say this, um, what people are really surprised with when they see our act is they never expect it to be, the magic to be that good. Because we are, and again, this sounds so arrogant, but it's my podcast, I'll say, it's my interview, I'll say, but no, you know what I mean, this is, we're really funny on stage, and we can get an audience laughing really loads, and then they just don't expect you to then have that skill set to fool the pants off of them. Particularly with our style being so chaotic and so anarchic, you know, like the review that we had this week, sort of, it, it, it almost expressed exactly that sentiment. It was the idea that it seems like there's just absolute chaos and pandemonium happening on stage, but then suddenly, at the end of a routine, you realise that it's all been leading towards this one moment and that it can only have worked if we were in total control of everything the whole time and it it creates this really nice dynamic where the audience doesn't know how all the pieces of the puzzle are going to come back together at the end Uh, and i think i think in doing that sort of one of the trademarks of our routine so often is that they just don't see the ending coming you know, there are certain things, if you make something disappear, it's going to reappear. If you lose a card in the deck, you're going to find that card, that sort of thing. But when you've got so many separate ends, like they're looking at a book, they're holding goo, there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of madness happening, and then suddenly all those pieces come together, and the page has disappeared from the book and is now inside their own hands. No one predicts that. And so it just, it, it, it comes out of left field and completely slams them, and... It, it creates just really nice, powerful moments of cohesion and magic amongst the chaos. I love Tommy Cooper, and I'm sure yeah. you know, yeah, Tommy yeah, Cooper's one for you. And the, the occasional <clears throat> times when one of Tommy's tricks worked, the reaction yeah. from yeah, the audience yeah, yeah. is phenomenal because they're not expecting it, and they're mm. like, oh, wow, now it's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whilst I've mentioned Tommy, it'd be nice to, to hear some of your guys' influences. And this can be, it'd be great to hear magicians, but if there's kind of people outside mm. of the magic world that they kind of influence you as a performer, um, that'd be great to hear. So kind of, who've had a, an influence on your guys' careers? Well, I like, like we mentioned... Yeah, Malika, yeah, obviously, yeah, huge influence. We'll, we'll breeze through that, because I know we already spoke about Tom Malika, but genuinely, like, the biggest influence in our magical career... And uh, and unfortunately, when he died a couple of years ago, he, like just I was like I got to meet him once, but it just it wasn't enough, you know. You know his style is very much just telling jokes and strong magic, and I, and it was he was the first person I'd seen do that, so I was just like that's what I want to be. I want to have people rolling around laughing, and then people going, oh my god, how do you get away with it? But outside of magic, we we like did so many like anarchic like stand-ups like phil k oh phil k wonderful paul curry as well again anarchy chaos but just so 
something so wonderfully pure about that at the same time you know some of the old you know, like Steve Martin his old stand up again it's that it's just that that energy that sense that anything could happen uh, which is something that we try and encapsulate yeah because I mean like that's our thing like we, you know we say we, you know we're good at riffing with the crowd but it is it's the same show every night we're not it's not it's not actually improvised it's all it's all very tightly scripted apart from a few asides um, but the feeling of it, when they watch it, they go, these guys are just, they're, like, they're bouncing around the place and it's all high energy and, and one minute they're making jokes at each other, the next minute they're dragging people out of the audience to help. And it is that kind of feeling of, when we first saw Phil Kay for the first time, we described it as, we saw, we saw him come onto the stage and he was just this manic ball of energy and it felt like that feeling of sitting in a roller coaster and having the roll bar come down. You just realise, you, you were like, well, I'm here now, I'm stuck, but you've just got to hold on and ride it out. You've got no idea what's coming, whether it's going to be fun or not, and it, it, it invariably is, but yeah, it's that, that sense of anticipation, which as an audience member, I absolutely love. And if, if we can bring that out in our audiences, then I think that's a, that's a real win. For me, one, I think one of the problems, in, and especially stage magic, I think it's one of the problems, not the biggest problem, but one, a problem that maybe a lot of people don't realise is, you got. You have to control when your audience gets to the point of the magic. If they all get to it at separate points, you're not going to get that ooh, that kind of that kind of guttural kind of ooh, kick reaction kind of thing. We used to do a, a Bill and Lemon routine, and it was fine. And what it was, and the way it would end was we cut into it and we'd pull it out and you go in a nice loud clear voice. Is that your sign to it? As you do it, you do a Bill and something this year. I've seen your show. Billing kiwi fruit. Yeah, you do a billing kiwi fruit, and you can uh, and you do it perfectly because you control that moment very well. Which is, you pull it out, you hand it to someone, and then and then you say, right, unfold it in a nice, loud, clear voice. Is that your money? Yes, that's a confirmation. They've all come together. They get that. If they if the audience gets that point, because I see some performers who are using whatever method they're using, they give the they give the lemon to the spectator, they give the knife to the spectator, the spectator cuts into it, they unfold it, they you go, well, you like it's cleaner in terms of method but you've ruined that moment you need that moment where everyone gets it together and you can't control the theatrical build yeah. at that point as well because you need to take them on that journey up to that peak and that's where you launch the the final reaction from if it's a little bit wishy-washy and if you leave it in the hands of an audience member who let's face it probably isn't theatrically trained um, then they're, they're going to have no concept of that. They're understandably going to do things in their own way at their own pace. Whereas we need to be able to control the build of energy, the build of momentum, the build of speed, potentially, if, if that's what we're going for, in order to, to create that, that, that pinnacle where the magic is, has happened and is confirmed and the whole audience, as Nath says, just they get that gut punch all at the same time and that's what creates like audible gasps and... and real moments of magic because so that's why we go with that kind of anarchic kind of crazy like very like full of energy style is because in doing that the audience don't know what's coming next and in a magic show the audience shouldn't know what's coming next it's a part of so for us they go well together in that kind of oh my god these guys are crazy anything could happen and also oh my god that's a trick where did that come from they go well together it's just that kind of they just never know what's coming next and I like that I like that a lot I like keeping my audiences guessing a really good way I found to um, help performers and I'll just mention this in case people are listening and thinking oh, I want everyone to get it at the same time as well if you do a trick on the street 
if people get it at different times, people walk away mm. because they'll leave as soon as they've seen something. I yeah. used to do the linking rings on the street, yeah. and by the time I had them all linked, no one would be there because mm. you see one or two and you bugger off. Yeah. So if um, I do a billion and no, a billion fruit on the street, and you have to get them all at the exact same time. Otherwise, they leave. Yeah, totally. Um, so anyone listening to this that might want to help with kind of building people to one final conclusion, that's a good way to do it. Let's build on a final conclusion with you guys. What's left? You know, you've got so much going on at the minute, so many shows that you're touring around. I wonder whether this could be five years, ten years' time. What are the aspirations for Griffin and Jones? Basically, like, I, I, I really enjoy what we're doing. Obviously, we want to write, you know, more magic shows and that kind of thing because just creating is what we... That, that's our absolute passion is the creating and the performing of it but largely I, like in 10 years time I want to be doing the same thing but just to bigger audiences for more money it sounds, it sounds so crass but like because people who aren't in the industry kind of go they say things like and I understand what they mean but they say things like you'll make it one day and you go, you go no I have made it because this is my job I'm doing this now kind of thing and yeah. you, you, I might not be rich but it's this is the life that I've chosen and I consider this a success. We, we are literally, like, we're very genuine, like, generally, we're very, very happy people because, like, obviously there are always things you're going you're gonna to be doing, but in terms of right here, right now, I have achieved everything I've ever wanted to achieve because I am a professional performer who writes his own stuff, who gets to go out in front of audiences of sometimes 100 people, sometimes 50 people. I make them laugh, I make them gasp, and, I'm, and I love that, and I get to create these new horror things, which is new for us, and it's great, and, we get, and again, it gets... Because magic and horror, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's the unexpected, it's the gut punch. So in 10 years' time, I would have liked to be writing more shows... I would like to just be playing in front of a couple of thousand people. I've got, no, I've got no, I have no ambitions to play arenas. That's not my game. I prefer to be able to see my audience and feel their kind of energy. Uh, but don't get me wrong, if someone wants to pay me a hell of a lot to play one, I'll do it. Um, but yeah, it's just doing what we do now, but maybe have a yacht. <laughs> that's, the, that's the dream. That's the dream. Lovely stuff. Uh, final, final question. And this is solely because part of the things I'd like to do with this podcast is get people reading more. Mm. I sound like I work for the... Department of Learning. Um, so, quick fire question to end with, guys. What's your favourite magic book or favourite couple of magic books? And actually, as you guys have so many skills, it doesn't have to be magic. So, if there's a really good juggling book mm. that you've learned, what's your kind of favourite book that you, you've learned skills from um, and, and you would encourage people to read? The two that jumped to mind with the interview when you said that was the first one is How to Cheat at Everything by Simon Lovell. Yeah, wonderful book. Um, which is just great. It's just great. And <laughs> Uh, I tell you what, I, I remember I read that last year on holiday, and I was sat, I was sat on my sunbed in, a, in my cheap package holiday because that's my game. <laughs> Again, one day yacht <laughs> before that package holiday. I was sat there, I genuinely was reading a book called How to Cheat at Everything, doing um, with one hand, doing a one-handed shuffle with the other one, and, so, and a guy came up to me and, and, and was like. I was like, do you need something to play cards with? And I was like, <laughs> you've got like, obviously, could there be any more hints? I'm doing a one-handed shuffle, reading a book, how, how to cheat and everything. But I love that book. It's got so many just niche little skills in there. And not necessarily anything I'd want to put on stage, but just fun skills to learn. And the second one is a theory book. Boring, boring. Strong Magic by Darwin Ortiz. Great book. It's a great, great book. book. Wonderful book. I've never read it cover to cover, but I've dipped in and out, and I'm pretty sure I've read everything because it's just so bitty and nicey. And it's just, yeah, I like, I like, you, you read it and just you read a chapter and it just makes you think about things for a second and you go that's, that's interesting and you put it down and you go on with your life it's nice yeah I would See? agree with those uh, that leaps to my mind at the moment I'm a big fan of like Darren Brown's books uh, Pure Effect uh, particularly Absolute Magic because it's more theory based uh, which you know 
There, there, are, there are millions of magic tricks out there. We don't need to be learning more of those. Um, but I love, I love reading about and just thinking about what I'm doing and how I can do it better and how I can apply more of my sort of, you know, theatrical experience and, and just how to apply being a human into magic as well. And I think that's something that, unfortunately, a lot of magicians seem to forget. You know, you become a trick monkey, but if you can find ways to just you know, engage with your audiences on a, on a very human, personal level, that's incredibly powerful. And I think Darren Brown had a really good line of, <clears throat> of philosophy to, to, oh, yeah, to like lead we, into that. We've always said, like, if we can be removed from our trick and the audience would still want to watch that trick, then we have failed. We have failed. The trick is very important, but it's not as important as us. So, yeah, and, and Darren writes great about that. Beautifully. Boys, thank you very much. Absolute thank pleasure. You very thank much. you, man. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Ah, hello. You're back, are you? I've come back from the pub. Yeah. How was your day? <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. I did. I did. I deliver that line correctly. That was fine. <laughs> yeah. I I went back and did the interview, and oh, I, that's what I was supposed to say. How was the interview? The interview was very good. I I hope people will in, have enjoyed it, and that they'll do the right thing. What exactly is the right thing? The right, the right thing is uh, to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or Podbean, rate it, and also share it around with the world to help us grow. Next week, we've got an amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is now, but it's a real oh, biggie. I, I want to know. I want to know who it is. You know. Do I? Yeah. Oh. Is well, it... I don't know what order we're going to be doing these. What order are you putting them out? Is it relevant to next week? Well, or is this just a random one just to... Uh, are we clutching at straws a little bit with the... Uh, the no, no, it's no. relevant to something happening next week. It's a big one. You know how it's all killer, no filler with our guests? Right, yeah. It's a killer guest. Okay. Next week. On Talking Tricks. Well, that's, that's something to look forward to. I can't wait. It'll be with you next Monday, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you ever so much for listening to Talking Tricks. <laughs> <laughs>